This is uh, Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32, starting on verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called, be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you, gave me, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Fathers, we turn our attention again to this beautiful and difficult word. Uh, Lord, may we hear from your spirit. May, may you open our minds and our eyes, our hearts, to receive what you have for us today. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're, we're looking at this story that Jesus told. And the reason he told it was really to explain the reason behind our celebration here of Christmas. We celebrate Jesus coming into this world, uh, the, the eternal Son of God taking on humanity in the womb of a woman and being born as a baby. It, it's mind-boggling to think about and obviously raises the question, why would he do that? And that's the question that Jesus is, is, is answering really with, with this story and a couple of others in Luke chapter 15. He says in Luke 19 that he came to seek and to save the lost. And this story explains what that looks like. It explains lostness. And we see one form of lostness is, is pretty obvious. It's the younger son who, who runs away from his father, tries to get as far away from him. And, 
and uh, he's, he's seeking fulfillment basically in, in breaking the rules, in doing things his own way, following his own path, whatever, whatever he desires, living immorally, and so on. And then the unexpected part of the story is that there's another son, an older brother, who's also lost. He's lost in a different way. Uh, he has also tried to find fulfillment on his own, but he's looking for fulfillment in a different way, by living a good life, a very moral life, keeping the rules. And he apparently believed that if he did exactly everything his father said, that his father was then obligated to give him what he really wanted. And with these two sons, Jesus is describing all of us. And we tend to fall into one of these two camps. We tend to either be people who are looking for fulfillment by being immoral rule breakers, or we look for fulfillment by trying to be moral rule keepers. And the real problem here. Remember, this, this story is an illustration. It's, a, it's, a, it's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. The real point is that Jesus is talking ultimately about us and are seeking fulfillment apart from the Father, apart from God, independently, doing it our own way, whether it's in a moral rule-breaking way or a very moral rule-keeping way. The problem is we all try to be God of our lives, rather than trust God with our lives. And so with this story, Jesus is telling us we're, we're all us, because instead of trusting, just as the sons did not trust their father, we don't trust God and we're lost, and we're separated from him on our own. Apart from Jesus, we're all lost. That's the bad news, and the, the glorious news, which is also in the story, is that just as the father in the story reaches out to his sons and wants his sons to be with him and to experience his joy. So God invites us to come in, to be with him, and to experience his joy. How do we do that? How do we come home to God? Well, the short answer is Jesus, just like in Sunday school. The, the right answer to Almost every question is Jesus, but it's the truth. Jesus is the big issue here. And you, we, we just have to get that. You've got to get Jesus is the issue. Do you realize the reason Jesus was telling this story and a couple of others was because the religious leaders of the day were mad at him. They had a problem with him. They did not get what he was doing. It irritated them that he welcomed sinners and ate with them. And so Jesus was not just trying to change their minds about lost people and what lostness looks like. He wasn't just trying to help them understand the Father's heart toward the lost. He was trying to change their minds about him. He wanted them to see that they were just as lost and just as in need of him, saving them as all those other tax gatherers and sinners that they were concerned about. So Jesus is the issue. Jesus is the issue in being found. 
Let me, let me try to really help you see that. Let me show you where I get all this. Okay, in Luke 15, Jesus tells three stories. So we just heard the third, the story of the, the son who ran away from home. But he tells a couple of others there. He talks about a shepherd losing a sheep and a woman losing a coin. And in each of these stories, there are several things in common. Okay, in each story, something very valuable gets lost. So the shepherd loses a sheep, woman loses a silver coin, and the father loses his son. So that's common. And in each story, the person who lost that valuable something gets it back. So the shepherd gets his sheep back, the woman gets her coin back, and the father gets his son back. And another, a third thing in common, in each story, when the person who lost what was valuable to them gets that valuable thing back, they celebrate. And they invite everyone around them to come and join in the celebration. So those, those pieces are common to all three of the stories. But there's one glaring difference between the first two stories and the third. I don't know if you noticed it, but in the first two stories, someone goes and searches diligently for the valuable thing that's lost. So the shepherd leaves his 99 sheep and he goes and searches for the one that's lost. The woman stops whatever else she's doing and carefully searches the house for the lost coin. But then you get to the third story, nobody goes after the son. Nobody goes looking for him. Nobody tries to find him. And it gets your attention because it's different. And it, and it makes you ask the question, why is that? Why doesn't anybody go after that lost son? Well, think about it. Who could have done it? Not the father. I mean, the younger son left the father by his own choice. That's what he was getting away from. He was getting away from his father. So if his father had gone after him, he would have just kept going because he was getting away from the father. What about the older brother? Tim Keller in his book, Prodigal God, makes the point that really culturally that would have been the thing to do. It would have been the responsibility of the older brother to go after the younger brother and sort of, you know, maintain the family honor and such. And the older brother doesn't go. Why didn't he go? Well, because he doesn't care. He doesn't care about his younger brother. But isn't Jesus making the point that he should have cared Isn't he saying in this story, I mean, the illustration ultimately is that lost people matter to God and so somebody should care about the lost. And see, by, by telling the stories this way, Jesus has raised a question. Who, who will be that true older brother who will go and search and find the lost. Who will seek lost people? Who will find them? Who will pay the price 
to bring them home to the Father. And Jesus is saying in these stories, I will. I'm the one. I am the true older brother who will care about lost people enough to go and seek them and find them and pay the price to bring them home. And of course, that price he paid was on the cross. That's why Jesus is the issue. And he's telling the Pharisees and the scribes, and he's telling all those tax collectors and sinners, and he's telling every one of us, I'm the one. God wants lost people found. And so he sent me to seek them and save them and pay the price to bring them home. And so that's really the ultimate lesson of of this story. I mean, above all other lessons, that's the ultimate one. Jesus is the one who rescues us from our lostness, He's the one. It's by trusting him, it's by trusting in his payment for our sins that we move from being lost to being found. Now, I suspect many of you, most of you, already know that. That's why you're here. You know that. And if you don't know that, if if you came today and you didn't know that Jesus is the one, the only one, who brings us to the Father because He's the one who came to seek and save the lost. He's the one who paid the price. I am so glad you're here and I just want you to know that's what God wants you to get. He wants you to understand Jesus is the one who rescues you and all of us from our lostness when we put our trust in Him and hit the price He paid. But most of you probably already knew that before you came here today. And so the question I want us to think about is this. Once we get it, once we get that Jesus is the one who rescues us from our lostness, how do we help other lost people get it? How do we help them see it? How do we help them understand that because we're lost from God and our lostness messes up everything, everything it separates us from god the the only source of true life and mercy and justice because our lostness condemns us to eternal misery how do we help people see that jesus is the one they need he's the one how do we help them see it That's what I want to think about. Because I see a couple things here in in this story that I think will help us. Help us understand how we can point people to Jesus, the one who rescues us from our losses. Okay? So here's the first thing that I see. First thing is, we have to admit our own lostness. We've got to come to terms with our own lostness. We've got to admit that apart from Jesus, we're lost too. He's not just for other people. He's not just for tax collectors and sinners. We're all lost without him. And that's true. We're all lost uh, whether, you know, whichever lostness, you know, yours looks like. Whether it's the younger brother kind of lostness, you know, the arrogant, self-indulgent form of lostness. 
or if it's the older brother kind of lostness, arrogant, self-righteous lostness. The thing is, we've got to admit we're lost without Jesus and remember that. Keep that in mind if we're ever going to point anybody else to him. And the key word for this here in Luke 15 is the word repent. You see it in verse 7. He's just told about the, uh, the shepherd and the lost sheep who finds the sheep, brings it home, and he says, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And again in verse 10, it says something similar. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Repents. It's not a word we use a lot in everyday life. Somebody said that in casual conversation, you'd go, that's weird. But it's a good word. And it, it sounds religious, but it's, it's actually very simple. To repent means to turn around. It means you realize you're going the wrong way and you need to do a 180 and go the other way. So we see a picture of it here. The younger son realizes, you know, doing it my way, this is a dead end. I need to turn around. I need to go back to dad. That's repentance. Or it's what the older brother needed to do when he was outside and the party was inside and he needed to stop sulking and he needed to stop feeling sorry for himself and he needed to stop being proud of his own achievements and turn around and go inside and be with his father. So repentance. And the key, the really crucial part of this is, is, is admitting realizing, acknowledging that our lostness is our own fault. Okay? We, we didn't just get lost accidentally. You know, we didn't, we didn't misread the GPS. Oh, look at that, Northwest 119th. I thought it said Northeast 119th. No wonder I'm on the wrong side of the county. No, we didn't misread it. We didn't misread God's GPS. God's GPS said this way, and we said no. I'm going this way. I think my way's better. I think I know best. So, we are that arrogant younger son who told his dad, I can't be happy with you, dad. I need to get away from you. Or, we're that arrogant older son who decided, you know, Dad, I can't trust you to make me happy. Being with you is not good enough. I need to decide for myself. I need to be able to focus on my own achievements, my own merit. So he chose to trust in his own goodness instead of his father's goodness. Same thing. Same problem, ultimately. The point I'm trying to make is, <laughs> nobody accidentally ends up on the throne of their own life. We staged a coup. We declared ourselves Lord of our lives, even if we didn't say it out loud. So our lostness is our own fault. Have you admitted that yet? Because until we do, until, until we're convinced that we need Jesus to save us, 
We need to repent. We need him to bring us to the Father. Highly unlikely we're going to be able to point anybody else to him. So, we've got to admit our own lostness. And then the other thing is, we have to avoid older brother-itis. Older brother-itis. What is that? It's a crippling disease. It ruins churches. It ruins a church by changing it from a warm, loving, joyful, inviting, grateful, Christ-centered group of sinners saved by grace It changes them into an uninviting, complaining, condemning, self-focused, self-centered, self-righteous Pharisees. And we're all at risk. If you just heard me describe it and you thought, well, I I would never do that. I would never be like that. You're already infected. Because that's how it shows itself. I'm too good for that. I'm above that sort of thing. See, there's this tendency I think we all have. If we've experienced the rescuing mercy of God in our lives in Jesus Christ, if we've experienced that, and then we begin to follow His directions, we begin to, you know, He told us in in Matthew 28, He said, teach teach my disciples to obey everything I've commanded. So we, we go, okay, I need to obey. And so we, still, we start following and we start obeying his directions. We have this tendency to get into being preoccupied with our performance instead of his grace. And so we start to focus on, okay, how am I doing? Now, that's not a bad question to ask, but when that becomes our focus and our preoccupation, it's a problem. How am I doing? How hard am I trying? And when I fail, how sorry am I? Am I sorry enough? And how am I doing compared to other people? How are they doing? How am I doing? And as we we learn more and more about how life should be lived, we tend to get a little impatient with people who don't get it, who don't seem to see it, who, who aren't living that way. What is wrong with them? What is wrong with them? Are they defiant? Are they just stupid? And if we we believe we're doing a pretty decent job of living the right way, we start to expect that God is going to bless us because of our performance. And then if he doesn't bless us the way we expect him to, or if he allows something really difficult to come into our lives that we weren't expecting and we think we don't deserve, because after all, we've been good, we've been trying, we've been obeying, and we get upset. And pretty soon, we start to look a lot like that older brother guy who looked a lot like the Pharisees. Those people nobody went to for help. Older brotheritis. How do we avoid it? How do we 
not come down with a full-fledged case of it? Well, the, the simple answer is to look at the older brother in the story and do exactly the opposite. Okay? But let me, let me just give you a couple specifics. First of all, fight. Fight hard a certain belief. Fight hard the belief that you ever can earn the Father's favor or deserve His blessing. If we ever start thinking God should or God ought to bless us because of our performance, then our thinking's messed up. Basically, anytime you you complete the sentence, God ought to, it's not a good way to go. We're off the rails. In fact, God doesn't even want us to try to live that way. He doesn't want us to try to live thinking we can earn or deserve his blessing based on our performance. He wants us to live a very different way. And over and over again, Scripture tells us this. He wants us to live by faith, by faith in his grace. By faith in his grace. Receiving his grace. Okay, look at Hebrews 11.6. It says, without faith, without trusting, it is impossible to please God for whoever would draw near to God. There's the goal. Drawing near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. Now you could say, whoa, wait a minute. It just says right there, we need to earnestly seek Him. That sounds like a lot of effort earnestly seeking him so hey our effort matters yes it does yes it does but be careful because there's a huge difference between effort and earning effort and earning are not the same thing let me try to illustrate it let's say i come up to you and say hey i want to buy you dinner let's go out for dinner i'll buy you dinner and we go to the restaurant, and you order whatever you want on the menu. And the waitress brings it, sets it before you. How, how does that meal become your... I mean, how do you experience that meal? You've got to put out some effort. I mean, you've got to pick up a fork. You've got to, you know, put the food in your mouth. You've got to chew it, and you've got to swallow it. So there's some effort involved but you're not earning the meal. I paid for it. I didn't sit there and say, well, let me see first how well you eat. Let me see how well you perform. And if you perform well enough, okay, I'll buy it. I'll reward you with that. No, I paid for it. It's a gift. The effort is for you to experience it, to enter into it or for it to enter into you, in this case. Okay, how do we experience the banquet that Jesus purchased for us? Is there some effort involved? Yes, there's effort, but it's not earning. We didn't pay for the banquet. It's a gift. It's free. Jesus paid the price. So there is effort, but it's not earning. And the question we have to ask here in, in Hebrews eleven six: why does God reward those who earnestly seek him? 
It's not because of what they deserve. It's because of who he is. See the emphasis? We must believe that he exists, that he rewards. He is a rewarder. He, he is gracious. He is giving and he rewards those who seek him. We're not seeking a good grade. We're seeking him. And the issue is where we're putting our trust. Where are we putting our trust? Are we trusting in our performance or are we trusting in his goodness? See, a mindset of earning is opposite a mindset of receiving. And grace is always about receiving. Okay? Grace is not opposed to effort, but grace is opposed to earning. We never earn from God. We only receive. Some verses to point this out. Romans 9.32. Romans 9.32, the Apostle Paul is talking about the people of Israel, and he's, he's emphasizing that the people of Israel, by and large, sought to be, they were seeking to be right with God. They were seeking God's approval. They were seeking righteousness, being right with God, uh, and they failed. Why did they fail? Romans 9.32, because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. In other words, they pursued being right with God as if it were an issue of their performance and not an issue of God's grace. Romans 1.5, the Apostle Paul says that he, as an apostle, received grace and apostleship to bring about, look at this phrase, the obedience of faith. And he contrasts that with the obedience of works. He's like, wait, what's, what's the difference? What is obedience of faith? It's this. It means obeying God because you trust him. You trust him to be good to you in Jesus Christ. It is the opposite of obeying him because you think that if you perform well enough, he'll give you his approval. It is a massive, massive difference in how to think and live. Faith puts the focus on Jesus. Faith puts the focus on his goodness. His performance on the cross is resurrection. His goodness, his wisdom. And yes, we follow his rules. Of course we do. But it's not because we think we'll deserve his blessing if we perform well enough. No, we follow his rules because he's good. Because he knows what he's doing. And we trust him, and we obey him because of it. Okay, here's another way to think about it. Think about this. What is the problem when somebody's not obeying God? What's the root problem? You say, well, they're not trying hard enough. You're okay, they're not trying hard enough, but why not? Why aren't they trying? What is the root problem every time we don't obey God? We don't trust him. We don't trust him enough. That's always the issue. That's always the issue. And so the solution is not to simply try harder. Yeah, maybe you do need to try harder, but that's not the, the core of it. The core of it is you got to trust him more. You got to look at Jesus. You got to look at how good he is. You got to see how good he is and how wise he is. And you trust him because of what he's done and what he's promised. See, that's the focus of faith. 
The problem with older brotheritis is it puts the focus on us, how hard we try, how well we perform, what we deserve, <laughs> especially what we deserve in contrast to all those rebellious, stupid younger brothers out there. Don't think that way. Fight that kind of thinking. Refuse to focus on your merit. Now, I'll tell you this. This is how it tends to show itself. You're either feeling really good about yourself based on how well you're performing, or you're feeling really bad about yourself, how, how badly you're failing. And both of those are symptoms of focusing on performance instead of focusing on Christ. So put your focus on Jesus and on his undeserved grace. And that brings up the other thing we shouldn't do that the older brother did. Don't look down on older sinner, uh, older sinners. <laughs> other sinners. The way the older son looked down on his younger brother. Look at him. He thinks he's so superior. <laughs> I would never do that. I would never do that. In fact, he's so disgusted with his younger brother, you won't even call him brother. He says, no, he's your problem, dad. He's your son. And what is so ironic, what is so ironic is he's just as guilty as his younger brother of the same root sin of not trusting his father. He is just as much in need of forgiveness for dishonoring his father as his younger brother was. And he doesn't see it. And so there's a key lesson here. You can't fix a heart that doesn't love God, trust God, honor God. You can't fix a heart like that by simply keeping the rules. So, if you're here today and you know the right way to live, if you know the right way to live and you want to live that way because you trust God, then you have so much to be grateful for and absolutely nothing to be proud of because there's one explanation only for why you would trust God and want to obey Him, and that is you have been touched by the undeserved grace of God. That's the only reason you want to trust Him and obey Him. There's never a reason for thinking we're superior to other sinners. And so, don't be like the older brother. You know what word sums it all up? It's the word humility. Humility. I really feel like this is the, the difference between churches that are warm and inviting and loving and churches that are cold and hard, it's humility. The younger son showed humility when he realized he was going the wrong way and he turned around and he said, I'm, I'm stupid. This is crazy. i got to go home. And, and Jesus doesn't say it. He doesn't say he, he came home. I love how he says it. He came to his father. He came to his father. That was humility. And the older son, it's his lack of humility that keeps him outside. He couldn't admit he was wrong. He couldn't admit that he was hard-hearted. He couldn't admit that he was hard-hearted toward his dad and had rejected him just like his younger brother. Humility makes all the difference. And if you're really humble, you won't be proud about it. Because humility is not earning us favor with God. Humility is admitting we don't deserve it. 
I think humility is how we point people to Jesus. Humility to admit our sin. Humility to care about their lostness. Humility to give all of the attention, all of the glory, all of the focus to Jesus. The one who came to seek and save the lost. Look at 1 Peter 5.5. 5. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Do you want to be opposed by God, or do you want him to just pour grace on you? If you want him to oppose you, be proud. If you want him to pour grace on you, be humble. It's a terrible thing when Christians forget who they are. It's a terrible thing when we forget who we are, if we know Christ. If we forget how much Jesus has forgiven us if we forget how completely dependent we are on his grace every moment, when we're hard, when we're cold, when we're angry, when we're proud, people can see it. And they don't want it. A proud Christian is a contradiction in terms. You know how many people arrogance has led to Jesus? I don't think anybody. So, may God make us and may God keep us a humble group of people who are constantly receiving His grace and dispensing it. Let's pray. And if you're here today and you have yet to respond to the grace of God in Jesus, if you have yet to say, yes, he's the one who came to seek and save the lost, and I'm lost, and my way's not working, my way has separated me from God, I need the grace of God in Jesus. You can have it today. Ask him. Put your, put your hope, put your trust in the one who came to seek and save the lost. And if you know him, let's pray that God will keep us humble and just extend his grace. Let's be grace dispensers. Father, we, we come to you and, and I, I see all kinds of evidences of older brotheritis trying to take over my life and my thinking. And God, forgive me for that and help me to be like you, a dispenser of undeserved grace. May no one feel they have to somehow earn kindness or earn the gospel or earn anything from us. Help us, Lord. Help us. Help us point people to Jesus. Help us use the opportunities you would give us during this season of the year to explain why Christmas is awesome. Thank you for Jesus who came to seek and save the lost. Without him, we're all lost. And so thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.